Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I bring you brand new original military histories. But once a week, I like to delve deep into the History Hit archive to bring out a fascinating history that deserves some renewed attention. This one is on the Lost Wrecks of Jutland. The Battle of Jutland was the decisive naval clash of the First World War, pitting the German high seas fleet against the Royal Navy's Grand Fleet in an all or nothing battle for supremacy and survival. Now, at the end of the war, the defeated German fleet was scuttled at Scarpa Flow, or so we thought. New evidence suggests that wrecks in Portsmouth Harbour, previously thought to be nondescript vessels, are in fact German veterans of the Battle of Jutland. They were scrapped at Portsmouth rather than Scotland. Dan joins a team of marine archaeologists to explore these wrecks. But the question is, will he make it across the treacherous mud to reach them? Enjoy. Jutland was the decisive naval clash of the First World War. And after the war, the German fleet that was defeated at Jutland was scuttled at Scarpa Flow. Every remnant of every German ship that was in that battle lies beneath the waves. Or so it was believed. Recently, two wrecks were identified in Portsmouth Harbour, and it's believed that they might be veterans of the Battle of Jutland. I'm meeting Nick Hewitt, Head of Exhibitions and Collections at the National Museum of the Royal Navy, to find out more. I went to explore these wrecks that have been lost for over a century. It turned out to be quite an adventure, and we ended up almost losing a maritime archaeologist and myself. Well, I've come to my favourite place in the world now, which is the historic dockyard in Portsmouth, the world's most famous and important naval base, home to the Royal Navy for centuries. Just over there, we've got the wreck of the Mary Rose, which was brought up in the 80s, Henry VIII's flagship. There, HMS Warrior, a ship so advanced it made every other naval ship on Earth obsolete the minute it was launched. HMS Victory, Nelson's flagship, just there. But on the way in, one exhibition is very special at the moment. It's temporary, and that is about the Battle of Jutland in 1916, a centenary exhibition about what was at that point 
the world's biggest naval battle. Nick, tell me, why did he make such a big deal of Jutland? Because Jutland is the Royal Navy's moment in the First World War, so important and so epic and dramatic, and that's what we're trying to convey in this exhibition. Briefly, what happened, the German fleet left harbour to try and ambush the Brits. Yeah. The Brits found out and went out and ambushed the Germans. Absolutely, and then there's this, this moment that both fleets have been waiting for, Der Tag, when the two fleets fight. There's about 20 minutes, half an hour of furious action between all the fleets. The Germans go back to port, and they never seriously contest for control of the sea again. Let's go have a look at your objects. Let's go. We tried to focus very clearly on that 36-hour period, which loosely is from the moment that the last British ship raised anchor and left Scarpa Flow, because that was a process that took quite a long time, to um, the German battlecruiser side that's running aground on the Jade Bar, and which is marked on the, the way home. Yeah. So, um, that's how we bookmark. One of the hardest things to convey um, if you're trying to talk about a naval battle without a ship is to get the scale of it. So this is the end of the barrel of a 15-inch gun. These are the biggest guns deployed by any side at Jutland. You can see the rifling inside there. And so this is some of the biggest naval guns ever fired at sea? Absolutely. There's wow. nothing bigger in the First World War. The Japanese put some bigger ones out yeah. in the Second World War. And that's the shell. So that's the, the weight, because it's so dense, weight of a small car. So um, you're firing a small, small car across miles and miles of sea. And That's to how many miles? Because the battle was fought at such extraordinary range. It was, it? yeah, and it varies. But, you know, 8, 10, 12, they can shoot up to about 20 miles, some of these, but they can't see that far. So that's a kind of meaningless. They're still, they're still really firing to the horizon is about as far as they can effectively fire. But obviously with the smoke and the haze and the poor visibility, they're trying to bring in the range as close as they can. It's astonishing to me they actually managed to hit anything because also, yeah. you know, there were ships going up and down, you know, they're moving, I mean, it's... Yeah, and there's, there's an extraordinary science to gunnery with the, the techniques with the rangefinders. Germans and the British are using different rangefinders. It's all about being able to spot the fall of shot and then actually distinguish your fall of shot, so your shell splashes from another ship's shell splashes. So in theory, the idea was that each ship would be assigned a target so you'd know you were only firing at your own target and there weren't anybody else's splashes there. But in practice, in action, when everything's chaos, it's very hard to do. And when one of these shells hits a heavily armoured German ship, what effect would it have? Now, there's an interesting question, because where I think the Germans do have an advantage is with their shells. Because the German shells are basically designed to penetrate the armour and explode inside the vitals of the ship. Although the British shells are supposed to do the same thing, they're not as well designed, and a lot of the British shells tend to explode on the outside of the ship. So they do a tremendous amount of damage to the upper works, none of which is vital. Okay. But they're not getting inside and exploding in the heart. So that there is a real problem there, there's no question about it. But in theory, that's an armour-piercing shell. It's supposed to go through the armour before it blows up inside the ship. And one of these in the right place oh, can, absolutely. can destroy a battleship. Into a magazine. But actually, it's not just all about the magazines in the shell rooms. If you get one into the boilers, into the engines, you know, if you hit a boiler, that's immediate loss of speed, which can be fatal for a ship in action. Amazing. The really big deal for us, we had these magnificent battle ensigns. They are huge, complicated objects. They're really difficult to conserve. They're incredibly difficult to mount and hang. But we thought if we didn't do it now, when would we do it? And that was hanging from Flying. the stern. Uh, this one's a battle ensign, so it'll be up on one of the main okay. masts. 
flying at the Battle of Jutland. It's absolutely gigantic. This was a period where ensigns still presumably mattered for identifying ships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was a serious business. But also a tradition. And the tradition was you put up the biggest ones you have and as many as you can get. So they'd go into action with six or seven, eight of these flying from everywhere they could possibly mount them. That's that makes life a bit confusing given they were trying to do flag signals at the same time. Well, these ones just go up and stay up. But, but the other ones are sort of... Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, it's, it's a messy business. In funnel, funnel smoke, gun smoke... Obviously, that's one of the defining characteristics that's, that's of the right. Officer. It certainly is. God, that's amazing. This is a piece of the armour plate from HMS Barham. It's from the gun room. If you look at the way the portholes set up, actually, this was a shell that went in, exploded in the gun room, oh, and I burst see. out. How interesting that you're looking at the effect of, of shock coming from within the ship. Yeah, absolutely. Like the ship's almost bursting apart at the seams. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, this obviously is nowhere near the thickest armour on the ship. This is quite thin plating, but nevertheless, that's a splinter that's done that. That's a shell splinter's ripped through that on the way out. When I first started thinking about shell splinters and splinters, you tend to think of the thing you get stuck in your finger, don't you? Yeah. So in the context of a naval battle, that's a shell splinter. Wow. So you can see the shape of the shell. When the shell it bursts, it fractures into, into splinters and they fly everywhere. That's the kind of thing that would do that damage to bars. So that's flying around inside the vitals of a ship at supersonic speed. Absolutely. I mean, that's really, really going to ruin your day. So this is a builder's model. When the shipyards built the ships, they would also commission these magnificent models. This is HMS Canada. HMS Canada was being built for Chile at the start of the First World War. And what happens at the start of the war is they sweep up all the ships that are remotely useful that are being built for other countries. So she immediately goes into the Royal Navy, becomes HMS Canada. She serves all the way through the First World War, including at Jutland. At the end of the war, because we like the Chileans, they hand the ship on to the Chileans. Slightly cheaper, because she's now had one less than careful owner. Uh, and she goes on to the 1950s as the flagship of the Chilean Navy. It was in the IWM when they were bombed during the Second World War, and it was very, very badly damaged. So we restored it, but if you look at the deck, you can see the splinter and bomb damage from World War II. So that's so, from the Blitz? That's from the Blitz. So this model's been in action just like the ship that it represents. Well, this has been in storage since the 1920s, this magnificent painting. It's absolutely vast. It shows um, the moment when the fleet is turning, the destroyers are going into action. It was painted in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. We think probably the artist may have gone to sea with the fleet. The real drama of it, but also you can see there's all those battle ensigns flying, there's the smoke and the haze. It's not a clean business, the Battle of Jutland. One of the hardest things for us, we were determined to tell the German side of the story, but we're a UK museum, our collections are mostly British. Less material has survived in Germany because obviously the Second World War intervened, but we were lucky enough to get this. This is the bell from one of the German dreadnoughts, the Grosser First. It was found in Southampton where it was being used as a flower pot. So if everyone can go and check their check flower, flower pots, pots, you never know what's there. So there's a lot of debate about Jutland. There's a debate about who won it. Well, I think one of the things we're trying to show in this exhibition is that the British won it. They didn't win it very cleanly, they didn't win it very well, but in the end, they held the ground, they were still there, the Germans went home and they never made another serious effort to challenge for control of the sea. So that's point one. Point two, what is the point? If you've got control of the sea, does it make any difference? Surely the First World War was fought on land by soldiers in trenches, and that's what it was all about. Well, we would like to argue no. Jutland is a long game. Jutland in itself doesn't win the war. What it allows is the Allies to maintain the blockade of Germany, and ultimately the blockade of Germany is a war-winning weapon. Germany can't get the resources it needs to fight and live. 
it can't win the war. What do you think this jacket is made of? Looks like a little sort of thin linen or something. I don't know, what is it? That is made of woven paper. Paper? Yeah, because they haven't got enough cotton because Germany imports her cotton. Now, if you're making your clothes of woven paper, the game's over, you've lost the war. We've had objects traveling from all sorts of distances. This one came all the way from Orkney, where the remains of the German fleet still lie underneath the waters where they were scuttled by their own crews. Because at the end of the First World War, they surrendered to the British and then they sank themselves in Orkney. They right? did indeed. And this gun came from one of those sunken ships, the destroyer B-98. So it's one of the German destroyers and torpedo boats that took part in the Battle of Jutland. So this is our Jutland gun. So when you opened this exhibition, and we worked together a couple of years ago on Jutland, you got this gun, very pleased with yourself. You thought, this is as close we're going to get to bringing the German fleet at Jutland to Portsmouth. But you weren't right, were you? We weren't, no. Um, something else has literally come out of the water since we opened the exhibition, um, which I think you're going to really like. We've got some, some archaeology, some legacy of Jutland right on our doorstep. A super early start takes us to Portsmouth Harbour. It looks like Nick really hasn't promised too much. Hello everyone, welcome to a beautiful sunrise here in Portsmouth Harbour, Britain's most historic naval base. I'm standing here just waiting for the tide to go down. It's one of the lowest tides of the entire year today. Very, very spring tides. Uh, and we are going out there to investigate some wrecks. Those shipwrecks, they were thought to be nondescript shipwrecks until someone went out and had a poke round and found out they might be vital wrecks from World War One. Today we are going to go out and we're going to learn more about them. It's a hell of an adventure. We may get stuck in the mud, wish me luck. I'll be joined by historian Stephen Fisher and archaeologist Julian Whitewright. They have ventured to the wrecks once before, but today they're on a very specific mission. Also coming along is Nick, of course. He's never seen the wrecks up close before. A few ground rules. We are going across 30 metres of intertidal mud. The basic rule is don't get stuck, don't drown, don't stop. The longer you stand somewhere and take photos or tweet, the more likely you are to sink. So just keep moving once you get across. After that safety briefing, the adventure begins. Oh my God. And things are off to a less than smooth start. You look like you might actually be stuck. <laughs> Should have stopped, Julian, that was the problem. Watching from the safety of the pontoon, it slowly dawns on me what I've got myself into, but there's no turning back now. With everyone back on their feet, for the moment, I decide to go for it. I'm going in. Oh, I'm losing a boot. I seriously can't get out of this. Somehow, by moving as fast as possible, I managed just fine. But back on the pontoon, the situation has taken a dramatic turn. We have one person fundamentally stuck in the mud. This is uh, it's not a drill. They've got a rope on him and they are pulling him out. It might have too much stretch in it. Can you push backwards with your feet? Yeah. yeah. Woo! Here he goes. <laughs> okay, he's being rescued. That's going well. Nick is still not out of the water. They're digging him out. He's on the pontoon. I mean, he's basically going to live. The rescue attempt is complete, everybody. Back to the history. So we've made our way out to the wreck here. Only a few of us have made it. We had difficulty getting one of the historians over here. But three of us have made it out here. So we're going to continue with the investigations with what we got. Now I'm going to go and talk to the team. Here we go. So what are we doing now? These are the original boiler tubes. And we're cleaning these off all the seaweed. We can get a good look at the damage that's been caused to them during the gunnery trials that were done in 1920. And the thinking is, because we have extremely detailed records of what happened during the gunnery trials and the damage that was caused to the ships, in particular the boiler areas, we can work out the identity of this wreck based on the damage that we can see here and how that correlates 
of the damage reports for the two wrecks because we have this wreck and the other wreck to try and work out which is which. We know that they're both V44 and V82, but hopefully there's sufficient damage to this boiler that will confirm its identity as one or the other. So it's like this, so this exhibition today is about trying to work out exactly what ship this is. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and yes, hopefully, because we're lucky enough to have these big upstanding features, these big bits of machinery, this could be the key for identifying exactly which one it is. What are Tudor men like their women to look like? They should have broad shoulders, fleshy arms, fleshy legs, and broad hips. What did 17th century Londoners think of coffee? A syrup of soot and the essence of old shoes. And what did executioners wear? A lot of these guys, they were clothes horses because it's a big public spectacle. All the eyes are on you. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from monasteries to the Medici, sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. As I set off to explore on my own, 
The disappointment back on solid ground is palpable. There's just so little evidence left from the Battle of Jutland. The trouble with sea battles is it all disappears under the waves. So obviously we've got HMS Caroline in the National Museum of the Royal Navy out in Belfast. But other than that, all the ships are scattered at the bottom of the North Sea until we learned that there was one right on our doorstep here in Portsmouth Harbour. So what I wanted to do was get on the ship, crawl over the ship, have a look at the, the evidence. We've got two big boilers sticking up there. We've got an engine. We've got some hull fabric. It would have been so exciting to, to get on there and actually be on board a, a Jutland survivor, really, in a funny sort of way. I got about five metres out into the mud. I went down very deep. I lost a boot. It was all pretty humiliating, really, and clearly my my attempt to get out to the destroyer was over at that point. In the meantime, I also managed to get myself into a bit of a sticky situation. Well, I've just <laughs> attempted to go around the south end of the wreck. The tide's coming in now quite fast and I got fairly badly stuck. So I'm just having to pull myself out of here, but I wanted to come and check out these boilers here. Um, the danger is, of course, we get stuck in the mud, the tide comes in and we suffer the old punishment that used to reserve for pirates, which is burying up to your neck at low tide and letting you drown slowly. So I need to uh, get moving pretty sharpish. But here's the boilers that I was trying to come and have a look at. So this is the stern here, they've chopped. Uh, 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 they chopped most of the stern off when they made this ferry terminal. So let's go and see how the lads are doing with the archeology. span All right, gents. What's going on over here then? We've cleared most of the seaweed off of these two boilers now, which gives us a good opportunity to have a good look at what's left of the tubes. And you can see most of the tubes are still here and intact, but we can see several areas of damage that have been caused almost certainly by shrapnel damage. Very deep penetration just over there. And as we come more towards the back of the boilers, more shrapnel damage here and more damage here and then lots of broken tubes around here. And unfortunately, we're missing the other half of the wreck because when that ferry terminal behind me was created in the late 70s, early 80s, they dredged this channel behind us. And as part of that, they lifted this wreck. So all we have is the front half, which is a shame because as you can see, there is quite a lot of upstanding materials still on this wreck. To have the boilers here is, is a fantastic resource. It's a pity that we're about 40 years too late, really. We could have <laughs> seen a lot more if that hadn't been dredged. Some people might argue that perhaps this is damage that was caused when this vessel was scrapped. But when we look at the forward boiler, there's absolutely no damage at all. So this is almost certainly shrapnel damage that was caused by the gunners on HMS Terror. Uh, who are operating for HMS Excellent, which is where we are now on Whale Island, when they were conducting gunnery trials using this ship as a target in 1920. They kept very detailed records of the damage that was caused to each vessel by each shell that they fired at it uh, for the purposes of uh, examining the effect of the ammunition they were firing and also the armour on the German destroyers. So we can now look at those records and compare them with the damage that we can see here and hopefully then identify this wreck. As the guys continue with cleaning up the wreck, the team find out what's next on the agenda. Although you have a, a big wreck that stands out from the sediment here, that's quite obviously something and something to investigate. There is another wreck and it's just out here. And when you're on the foreshore, you've just got to look out for the little blips, the little lumps. They might look like little chunks of wood, but these are actually chunks of metal out here. And they go in a long line. And if you look from the top, they're kind of ship shape. And this is potentially the other German destroyer and the next job once they've identified and worked on this one, which is the easier one to access, then the plan is hopefully 
get out and survey this one and positively identify these little marks here sticking out the sediment as the other German destroyer. Because there's so little above the mud line, there could be lots there. There could be a lot more than actually on this one. This one's very exposed, so it's had, it's had the elements, the sun, the water and everything else at it. However, this one has been kept quite nicely in the sediment. There are certain ways of identifying. First of all, if, if, you, know, if you know the measurements, if you know the size, if you know um, how it was set out, if you've got a former photograph or any kind of drawings of a wreck or of a, of a ship, then you can put them over the wreck site and compare the two. The ideal thing is just to see the name on the bow. We can't do that on these ones. It's highly, highly unlikely there'll be anything on here that says this is the. It's a, more of a situation where you, you take away the factor so it's not wood, so we can get rid of all the wooden shipwrecks so we've got definitely a metal one. You go down all the different factors until you work out which wreck it is. Um, for this one, we've got a good length. We pretty much know where the tip is on each end and we pretty much, we've got a very good idea of how wide it is. And on the basis of those alone, that will really help. But just basic measurements should help identify the wreck. What was the job of these German destroyers? They're comparable to British destroyers, but the Germans actually class them as torpedo boats. And these two destroyers, or torpedo boats, were both armed with six torpedo tubes each. German doctrine was more for their small boats to get in amongst larger warships and use them for torpedo attacks. So they weren't as heavily gunned as British destroyers. They were much more able to conduct torpedo attacks. And that, of course, is how they were used very successfully at the Battle of Jutland. And V-44, which is one of these two wrecks, was one of those German torpedo boats that moved into the middle of the battlefield in crucial phase. Although these weren't the biggest, most powerful ships in the mighty German Navy, they actually played a very critical part in the Battle of Jutland, which was the most important naval battle of World War I. I think everyone considers Jellicoe's decision to turn away as being the, the critical point of the battle. That was the decisive part. Many people have argued that if he had turned towards the Germans, he could have trapped them and inflicted a massive victory over them, a crushing victory, just like Trafalgar. Um, but he chose to turn away. And the ships that made him make that decision were these German torpedo boats. How many German ships survived from the Battle of Jutland? They were all scrapped or sunk in the interwar years. So there's not very many examples left, certainly um, above tide. So this is a remarkable connection to one of the great sea battles of history. This is tangible evidence of that battle, where you would least expect it in the middle of Portsmouth Harbour. While we uh, were investigating these as potential First World War wrecks, we came across a very fleeting reference from the United Kingdom Hydrographic Office to another wreck, a neighboring wreck, that referenced these two vessels as German. Uh, and that is where we then started our hunt. And it was uh, quite difficult to find any more information on these. There was no archeological records of them. There were no naval records that we could find. Nobody on Whale Island knew what they were. Uh, but we did some, some digging, uh, metaphorical digging into the archives, and we found German records that said that two German destroyers, V-44 and V-82, had actually been scrapped in Portsmouth Harbour. And that's where we started our investigations. And as we went on, we started to find more evidence that these were indeed these vessels. So incredible historical sleuthing. And today is the icing on the cake in some ways, because we think we might be able to identify exactly which one was which. Exactly, yeah. We should be able to establish which one is V-44 and which one is V-82. We have a fair idea that this one might be V82, which means that the Jutland survivor is V44, that one just over there. I think we have to make a move. The tide is creeping up behind us and we don't want to get stuck here. We've made some useful discoveries on this now. I think the, the key here is <laughs> move fast. Here we go. Jogging, jogging, jogging. Not much weight on the ground. Here we go. Here we go. This is the technique. 
Goodbye, lovely shipwreck. Whoa, I'm going down. Uh-oh, my feet came out of the wellies. Tide's coming in. Uh, uh, okay, that water is flying in. Here we go. Uh, oh, oh my God. It's gone. It's actually better without boots. From my experience, uh, uh, once you stop, you're dead. I was doing so well. Come on. With the tide rushing in, I managed to get completely stuck. And it's pretty exhausting trying to hack your way through the mud. There's a technique to it. Once you slow down, you're in big trouble. And now I need another pair of socks. Okay, we've all managed just about to get back out from that wreck. It was a close run thing. The tide's whipping in behind us and I got embarrassingly stuck, managed to lose boots and socks and everything. But the plan now is to try and get out and have a look at this second wreck. Now the archaeologists have never been out to look at this wreck before, so it's quite exciting. And with today's findings on the first wreck, a look at the second wreck, we might be able to solve this decades old mystery uh, and work out exactly which ship is which. A recently placed anti-erosion device means we can walk up to the second wreck without getting stuck. Obviously, someone from the base has, has laid out this fantastic um, line of sandbags, yep. and it means you can get close to this one for the first time. This wasn't here last time we were here, and it's really handy because it's very difficult to approach this wreck. Even though it's the one that's closest to the pontoon, the mud just over there where that barge is is impossibly sinky. So this gives us a really good view, and we can see a lot more of the wreck than we normally can. And this is the second wreck. There's much less of it that's visible. The stern, we think, just over there. So what's probably the bow about there. The bow looks like it's been broken up a little bit and that fits with old charts of this area that suggest that that watercourse coming out, that little stream that we had to cross earlier was originally much, much bigger. Uh, and it looks like they probably broke up the bow to clear that channel. But what we can see from above, other than that damage, is a very clear outline of a ship. So it's very likely that there are substantial remains of the hull underneath the mud. And if that is the stern, and if this is low enough down on the wreck, then there's a good chance that the propellers are still over there. That'd be good. Seeing it from this coast the first time, what are your impressions? Now, we've often wondered why there's still so much of these vessels left. They were sold to Pound Scrapyard in 1927, and they clearly started scrapping them on site, hence the fact there's so little left. But they would have carried on scrapping them. Those boilers would have been valuable. They could have scrapped that, but they stopped for some reason, and we can only assume that that's due to the Wall Street crash. And it was certainly no longer economically viable to recover metal off this site. It would have cost more to retrieve it than they could have got for selling it. And actually, presumably the mud, a little bit like Pompeii and Herculaneum, is this quite good conditions for preservation? Yeah, this is really good for preservation. This is why vessels like the Mary Rose were so well preserved. And of course, that was wrecked only about two miles from here out in the Solent. And it's this mud that prevents oxygen and uh, water erosion and actually preserves stuff within it. That said, you could see the wreck over there is, is rusty, it is eroding because that is in the intertidal area, it's not covered in the mud. They will break apart eventually. We're lucky to find them now, rather than 200 years later, when they'll probably be gone. As we can't get any closer to the wreck right now, we decide to head back to take a look at the gunnery reports. This is what I love about intertidal archaeology, apart from getting incredibly muddy and exhausted. You, you travel around the long, straggling coastline of, the, of, uh, of Britain, and you just see these little structures here and there, and you never know whether they're just a bit of rubbish or, in fact, a historically significant shipwreck. We've got Henry V's flagship, for example, just over the way there. And here, 
We've now discovered two German destroyers from the First World War. And as a result of today's investigations, it's very exciting the archaeologists think they might be able to identify the precise uh, nature of each of these ships and tell us which one played a possibly decisive part in the biggest naval battle of the First World War. So these are the gunnery reports. Basically they sailed a number of captured German vessels out into the Solent and fired at the targets to test the effect of the shells they were using of different calibres and also the uh, efficiency of the German armour. And so now what can we learn? So what we've seen out there, how does this relate to what we've seen? What information can we glean? Here? Well, very helpfully, they wrote a detailed description of the damage caused by every single shell that they fired. So we have massive amounts of detail and diagrams. And what this tells us is that um, the front two boilers on V44, the forward boiler suffered significant damage and the second boiler was barely damaged at all with only a single hit. So remind me, the, the boys we saw out there it was the other way around. It was round. the other way around, wasn't it? Because yes. the aft boiler had, was very badly damaged. And the forward boiler had no damage at all. So? And that very closely correlates with what we see on the damage reports for V82. And V82 suffered extensive damage from several hits on its second boiler, but there's no reports of any damage being caused to the forward boiler. So almost certainly that wreck that we were just on is the remains of V82, which How means cool. that one is V44. What a great discovery, thank you very yeah, much. Very well welcome. done. And so now, we, and which one played its, released its torpedoes at Jutland? The one in front of us, the, the so one we, of which there is sadly slightly less left. So we know. But there might be some more stuff beneath the mud. Brilliant, so today's muddy, disastrous expedition was not in vain. Oh, Excellent. Not at all. It's always worthwhile. <laughs> so I lost a sock a boot, and almost one marine archaeologist, but it was worthwhile. For the first time, we've been able to identify which wreck is which. The only ships left from the German fleet in the most important sea battle of the First World War. As the tide washed in, they sank beneath the waves again. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.